we have identified for years now that the topic of 1 Corinthians 14 is called the CEO of chapter 14 and that the three chapters that are concurrently running together is chapter 12, 13, and 14. And we um, have asserted that chapter 9 is where Paul begins to address the gifts in particular, uh, chapter 12 rather, the nine gifts in particular, and then Chapter 13 is a motivational context. We talked about that on Tuesday. Um, If God gives us gifts, it is for what? His glory and his honor. This is what we talked about. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all unto the glory of God. So when he gives you something, it's for his honor. If he gives you gifts, it's in order to equip you in areas in which you are not naturally, ontologically, or personally equipped. And uh, we want to make sure that we never steal God's glory by not giving him credit. When the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due, certainly God should be given honor when he gives you skill sets. It doesn't matter what they are. We say this is to the glory of God because as 1 Corinthians 4 puts it, what do you have that you didn't what? Receive. So when you and I are people that are honest and clear about being receivers, then it's really easy to give back because it didn't start with us and it doesn't finish with us. So chapter 13 is about love. The motivation is love and it's really agape. So what we're going to be dealing with today as we drive into the third category in chapter 14, second and third category, edification and order. We'll get there. What we want to do is acknowledge our gifts that God has gifted us. It actually is really the word charisma from where we get the term charismatic. Okay, charisma. It's it's really that should be an I there. Charisma. Okay, it's the term from which we are called gifted people. And every one of us are gifted. And the motivating drive is, as we said, what? Agape, that's the Greek term, which means that God pours into us in order that we might pour out. Agape is not a natural intrinsic quality to us. The love of God has to be poured into us. Romans chapter five, around verse seven and eight. Okay, it's important to see. The analogy for that, just because it's Friday and I can warm you up, you and I are called to be menorahs. We are candlesticks, right? You are the light of the world. And a menorah is not a self-generating light. A menorah is a candlestick that has to be poured into with the oil of grace into its bowls and therefore becomes a vehicle by which the light shines. So a lamp and a light are technically two different things. You can have a light without a lamp, but you can't have a lamp without a light and the lamp be purposeful. So if we are lamps, what we're saying is we're merely vehicles for the light. Right. And that's important for us to understand. He pours into us gifts in order that we might um, exhibit those gifts. Now, what First Corinthians 14 is dealing with is methodology and the methodology becomes the much more rigorous sort of discipline around the gifts that God gives us. If he gives us gifts, he wants us to also employ those gifts in a proper way. So 1 Corinthians 14 is dealing with three categories. I want to drill down into a little bit more Uh, disciplined today. Clarity is the first. That's going to be verses one through about verse 11 and maybe even verse 12 as well. And then edification is going to be from verses three all the way to like verse 26. We're going to see that in a little bit. And then order is our final one. He's dealing with clarity 
edification, and then finally order. And order is going to start at verse 33 all the way to 40. We'll talk that through. Now, when I talked about clarity, what Paul used was the analogy of the trumpet, if you guys recall, over in verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come, I need you to cut the volume down some, Ivory, it's too too echoey. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with um, tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or knowledge or prophesying? And so he's talking about it having the benefit. And then verse eight, this is the verse really. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Verse seven says, even things without life giving a sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction of the sound. That clause is what Paul lifts up a distinction of the sound. And what we said on Tuesday was, if you and I are purveyors, are conveyors of any mode of communication, we have to make sure our communication is distinct enough for it to be effective on the auditors or the people we're trying to impact. That makes sense. That's logical, right? And I use the analogy on Tuesday of different animals. Every animal has a distinct sound. Some animals can mimic other animals. They really can. But every animal has a a distinct sound. You would know that, right, just naturally. And you would therefore know in their own realm of communication, each animal making a distinct sound is going to target its own people group with its sound for that people group or that animal group, whatever it is, to respond to that sound. And so what Paul is saying is that the gift of languages, glossolalan, cannot simply be the matter of marabara. This is a Greek concept uh, of expressing something without intelligibility. So to be, to, to marabara poetica is the Greek term for babbling, or as Jesus said it in Matthew's chapter um, six, vain words, vain repetition. He was talking about the Pharisees just praying in a vain, empty way because it wasn't about content, it was about the sound. It was about the expression. And I've been uh, fascinated about that uh, for quite a while recently, as I have been exposed to more Arabic language recently and, uh, and, and Hebrew language and, um, <clears throat> yes, largely Arabic, uh, in, in that, you know, the Arabic voice now is emerging in terms of the conflict going on in the Middle East. And when you hear an Arabic person speaking, and these will largely be Muslims, but it can also, you can hear a, a Jewish rabbis will do this as well. They'll be speaking in English and then they'll immediately switch to Arabic, right? And they're speaking in Arabic to somebody that knows Arabic. And so for them, it's not, it's not babbling. But for me, who doesn't, don't really know how to identify a flow in the Arabic language, to me, it's babble. Whether you do it in Hebrew or whether you do it in Greek, or Latin, or any other language, as I told you. To just utter a language, just because you know a language, means nothing. And that's really where we are to understand that if we're going to be talking about the gift of languages, we don't want to learn the gift of languages just so we can tell people we have a language. That language has to have the capacity to target a group and to speak to them effectively. We talked about that at length, didn't we? So uh, under our first point, clarity, three subpoints. I don't want to go through them again. If you haven't been with us, simply get Tuesday's uh, study because we dealt with that. Under point number one, clarity. The gospel is a clear, what kind of sound? Intelligible sound. 
Cacophony is contrary to the gospel. You would agree with that, right? Cacophony doesn't help anyone. That's clearly what Paul is telling us. And then clarity leads to what? Unity. Unity. Uh, And and, and that's extremely important because unity is going to actually get us into category two, which is edification. Okay. Clarity does not edify. I mean, non-clarity does not edify. Chaos, confusion does not edify. It has to be intelligible speech, effective speech. It has to communicate to us in a way that draws us, that informs us, that enlightens us, that actually transforms us, which is where Paul's argument picks up under point number two, edification. Look with me in in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm going to start and I'm just going to... Uh, share the multiple verses here. There are about five verses. Certainly there are four of them within the first six verses. Notice how he brings this up. I'm in verse number three. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to what? Edification. And then he uses the term exhortation and comfort. We talked about that. Look at verse four. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edify it himself. So edification becomes again a thing for Paul, but he that prophesies does what? Edifies the church. So that's the third time edification has come up for the apostle Paul. Look at verse five. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with a tongue, except there be an interpreter. And we talked about that at length on Tuesday, did we not? that the church may receive what? Right. So for Paul, the primacy of the gifts has to be for the edification of the body. And what I stated was, is that if you and I are not practicing our gifts for the edification of the body, we are not practicing our gifts with the right motivation, which should be what? Love. That's exactly right. Because love does edify when love is properly <clears throat> executed. The argument that Paul would uh, begin to make for us around the need for edification to take place will be at, um, at verse, um, let's see here. His argument for us would be at verse 18. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. And we talked about that, that he had many more languages than they did. He says in verse 19, yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with an understanding that by my voice, I might do what? Teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now he's being a little bit uh, disciplinary, is he not? He's saying, look, I'd rather speak five intelligible words that can edify and build up than to speak 10,000 words in an unknown term. Of course, when he uses the term 10,000 words, that just becomes for us his sort of expressing that languages don't benefit if you if you can utter them for hours, if it doesn't amount to intelligent speech that can be. Uh, benefit and edification. So what is edification? What is what does that mean? You probably know, but we want to just talk about it again. The term is oikos in the Greek, uh, oikos nomos, and it actually has to do with a system, a system of building, or a better way to put it, an economy of building. Economy, not, uh, nomos, is always rooted in law. That's what that is, an economy of building. 
And that's what Paul is saying. The purpose of the gospel, our truth, propositionally, should be that it builds. That's what we want to look at. It builds. And in fact, that word is going to be translated several times as building. We'll see this word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that way as well, if you will, where Paul is talking about the... uh, the church. This is where he started this. Look at 1 Corinthians 3. Just one idea. Then I'm going to move forward in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 3. Notice what it says uh, in verse 12. Now, if any man build, there's our word, build upon the foundation gold, silver, and precious uh, stones, wood, hand, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for it shall, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now, Paul is warning about how we build. Look at verse 14. If any man's work abide, which he hath, here it is again, built thereupon, he shall receive reward. For Paul, this is a big issue. The idea of the building is a big issue because the building in its composite whole is the church, right? That's the edifice. The building is the church. This is the way Paul talks all the time. Ephesians chapter 4 is another example. Look at Ephesians 4. We'll start at verse uh, 15 and look at one more verse in relationship to that. In, In Ephesians 4 verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Here it is, verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of every measure of every part, make it increase of the body unto the what? Edifying of itself in love. So he's given a grand analogy here of the intramural process of the development of the body, that the body parts participate in the building of the body. You see that analogy there, right? It's an intramural process. So the body parts are not operating away. They're operating internally. They're operating among itself for the purpose of growth and development. That, that metaphor is a powerful, powerful metaphor. So under point number two, when the Apostle Paul talks about edification, archidemia, two subpoints we began to deal with, and I want to break into this now. We want to speak in order that men may do what? Hear. That's exactly right. We want to speak that they may be able to hear. And again, the argument that I'm going to render here is fairly simple, though I'm going to show you another example here in a moment in Nehemiah chapter 8. But it was in Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit of God was dispatched to the 120 in the upper room. Three things occurred, the sign and the wonder, the miracle, right? Because the tongues were visible manifestations of a one-time act, cloven tongues upon the heads of the people in the upper room. And then they began to utter, and I told you when they uttered, that concept there means to utter intelligibly with dignity and poignantness so that everybody listening to them heard them specifically and clearly in their own language declaring the wonderful works of God. Do you guys remember that? Right, so Acts chapter 2 is the last chapter in the world where you get 120 people in an upper room babbling and nobody being edified by it. So his, my argument, along with Paul's, would be that whenever speech proceeds from our mouth, if we can help it, we want that speech to be effective. We want it to be 
uh, impactful. We wanted to have the potential for transformative benefit. Did that make some sense? All right. So again, I want to nail that home because I want you to I want you to be raising the question because we can talk about it. You know what? What what constitutes an event between you and anybody else? What constitutes an event between you and anyone else whereby that other person benefits from a dialogue or conversation with you? What is the requisite for that? What what kind of mindset must we have? What kind of thought process? What kind of disposition do I want to have as a prerequisite to that outcome? Or do I simply want to have someone to hear me while I'm talking, which really is me listening to myself? Because there are lots of people that love talking and they're really talking to themselves and they could care less really how you hear it, whether you get it at all, whether it benefits you, whether the aim and intentionality of what they're saying is helpful. Did that make some sense? It's a little funny, but it's also tragic because actually your Bible will tell you, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. And the elliptical statement there is, or hold your peace. So fundamentally what the Bible is teaching you and me to do is really curtail, trim down foolish speech. That's Ephesians 5, by the way. And, and, you know, Christians are notorious for what I would consider just excess weight, excess, you know, lard, uh, rhetorically speaking. We can be that way. There should be a time in our life. Getting ready to go to the third point and show you why order is important here. Shouldn't there be a time in our life where we finally go, okay, I'm going to take what it means to be a person that is able to communicate more seriously. Right. Okay. It's it's time out for me traversing down pathways of human relationship experiences where what we're talking about does not amount to edification. Shouldn't there be a time in our life where we have an epiphany that I need to be intentional about avoiding that kind of empty space? Right. Because like the Proverbs will tell you, you know this, right? The Proverbs will warn us about a fool utters all his mind. But a wise man will hold it in until afterwards. And what does that mean? A a fool doesn't have a governor on his tongue. He doesn't know how to restrain himself. He does not know how to check his words up against his intentions and motivations so that the words are filtered through a constrained set of objectives and therefore do what that person wants his words to do. Does that make some sense? Right. Any of us may have had an experience here or there where we were running off at the mouth and then we can hear ourselves and you go, man, I have no idea what I'm saying. I don't know whether I'm going or coming. And when I can get a hold to the faucet, I'm going to cut this thing off because I'm just getting stupid. Does that make some sense? Right. There are people who are impulsive that way. What that is called is a fool. That's not a child. This would actually drive us back in Paul's ethic to chapter 13. When I was a child, I spake as a child. 
So like children often are aimless in their speech because they don't know how to determine the parameters of the subject. So they'll be all over the map and they need an, an adult or a wiser person to frame the dialogue, right? So you, you'll know often if you're in a situation with adults who are not really disciplined, that often you have to frame that relationship, don't you? As a child of God, you have to hem it in. Let me, let me set parameters on this because they're all over the place. And, and that can be very arduous psychologically and personally. You and I don't want to be known for being um, a claptrap in that sense. It's egregious for men to be that way, but it's doubly egregious for women to be that way. I'm giving you the inference of the scriptures, okay? Because one of the fundamental qualities of a woman is that she's to operate out of a meek and quiet, what? Spirit. What that means is her words are going to be measured and controlled because she actually is a much bigger, much larger phenotype of wisdom than even the man is, if that makes sense. Does that make some sense? And here's what I'm getting at, that, well, yeah, Sophia is a feminine gendered word and is universally understood in all cultures. It's a feminine gender because wisdom is the idea of producing, bearing fruit, abounding. And so the woman should have the characteristic and giftedness of knowing how to speak in a way in which she is able to economize her words. The economy of words allows her to actually be even more attractive. Does that make some sense? So the Proverbs would warn a loud and clamorous woman, loud and clamorous, is like a sow with a ring in his nose. I bet y'all never saw that verse before in your Bible, right? But it's there, right? So it's the incongruency of a beautiful thing being attached to what was called in the Middle East an unclean thing. And so the idea would be that um, as people of God, and we're going to see this when we get to the order point. That's probably the reason why I'm cultivating it now, because in the order principle, it's actually going to talk about what I'm talking to you about now, that the people of God should, for the purpose of clarity, speak in a way by which what they have to say can be effectively reaching the target that they wanted to reach and then have the capacity, if the season calls for it, to edify. Edify means to build up, to build up, to create an edifice in that moment, either in terms of increasing that person's or those people's understanding of the subject at hand or increasing the relationship. You know, because there are a number of categories we want built up. It may be that you are in a relationship with somebody and you want to build that relationship up. So if you want to build that relationship up now, your knowledge base, your tool set is to be designed to work in a reciprocal way between you being edified, them being edified in a mutual reciprocal process where you're both being built up. Am I making some sense? That literally is what Paul is meaning in Ephesians 4. Mutual edification should be the consequence of at least one, if not both parties, being committed to making sure every time we talk, we're anchoring down into subject matter that actually strengthens us, maybe corrects us, maybe modifies the way we're thinking, expanding our knowledge base, 
creating more freedom. And therefore, what Paul has stated over in verse, um, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14, he stated three sort of expressions or three outcomes that I think are extremely important in this right. Verse three, but he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, building up, exhortation, that's encouragement, and then finally comfort. The idea here of the comfort meaning to settle into the encouragement in a way that now they become better for it. Okay, did that make some sense? Edification, exhortation. Exhortation is a concept that means to encourage. Come on, you can do it. Come on. You can do this. And so that tenor in communication, in some cases, is strategically necessary when you're dealing with a brother or sister who may be extremely timid or weak or fearful or troubled. And you are the one now saying, come on, you can do it. Now, you're using words. You're framing arguments. You're setting before them proofs and evidences that they can do it. They can be this. And you're showing them why. And so now what you're doing is you are seeking to not only build them up, but strengthen them so that they can be settled in that building process. I think that that threefold outcome is a beautiful thing. Here then the Apostle Paul begins to move us to, um, I, well, let me do, deal with the uh, subcategory B for a moment. Uh, under point number two, edification, speaking that men may what? Hear. That is just, that's, that's just so fundamental. Speaking that they may hear. Faith comes by what? And hearing by what? Right. So we definitely want to be people who are capable of employing the wisdom of Scripture as well as the Scripture itself. But the goal is to be able to facilitate people's opportunity to hear. So if we speak in a way in which people are leaning into what you're saying, then that the, the aim is there. If I want to edify them, I want to have their ear. I, I love this. This was a, a portion of scripture I was looking at a little while ago, and I want to go back there if I can. This Maybe I can find this. It look, I think it's Luke 19, if you'll join me for a moment. This is on uh, another subject, but... Yes, yeah, Luke 19, but I think this will work for what we need to. Yes, here. Yes, here it is. I'm in Luke 19. I'm going to start at. Um, I'm going to start at verse 41. You're going to hear me talk about this on Sunday, but I'm going to use this as a as an as a point for what I'm talking about. Uh, verse 41. And when he was come near, that is to Jerusalem, he beheld the city and began to weep over it. This is Jesus weeping before his crucifixion. This would be called Palm Sunday, saying, if you had known even you, at least in this day, the things which make for or belong to your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Christ is actually letting Israel know their time is up. An opportunity for them to receive redemption has passed. And now they are left because of their behavior to a calamity that will be showing up in 37 years, 33 years. We talked about that before. Notice what he says over in verse 43. For the day shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench about you compass you about and keep you in on every side. That's called a siege. And they shall lay thee even to the ground and your children within you. Now that's horrible. 
So Jesus is prophesying about the Roman centurion, I mean, the Roman Titus coming in, Vespasian and them coming in and destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. And, and Tacitus, Josephus, and many historians, Herodotus, have written about these things specifically and in detail. And uh, sadly, you and I live in a century and in a culture, in a season right now where we can see these kind of atrocities being done by mankind. We are we are not ignorant that humanity can be as base as demons by nature. Am I making some sense? Particularly when war, when the spirit of war, when the red horse takes over, you and I can be as sadomasochistic as anything. Children don't matter. They're simply collateral damage. And apparently that is what our Lord was saying to them. And they shall not leave in you one stone upon another because you knew not the time of your visitation. Now, Jesus here is conflating the temple that would be destroyed, rebuilt by Herod with the people that would be deferring to the temple at that time for their protection. Sadly, the Jews thought that they could hide in the temple from the wrath of the Roman Titus. Hide in the temple from the wrath of the Roman Titus, which was coming by the decree of the sovereign Lord who allowed it to occur. This is kind of what we're going to pick up on Sunday. And, and what he said is the place that you needed to be hiding is in me. I've come that you might have life and have that more abundantly. But because you reject me, he said, these things will come. Now, notice what he says in verse 45 and following. And he went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is, it, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of what? Thieves. The other text is thieves and robbers. So, and Daniel talks about this in Daniel chapter eleven fourteen, of which I'm arguing against many of the Zionists as being thieves and robbers trying to establish something that God has not merited. But look at verse 47. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the, uh, of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do. Now, here is the point. For all the people were very attentive to do what? Here it is. So after that whole discourse, that line of teaching I just shared about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the first thing he does is what? Weeps. That means he has a right motivation, doesn't he? Weeping from love, right? He has already exercised for three and a half years gifts, has he not? And has he not sought the proper methodology of building them up by bringing the gospel to them? And we know this because the last verse tells us that many people were attentive to hear him. So he had their ear, didn't he? Right. And if you and I wanted to really uh, thread that out, we could just remember on many occasions where they were astounded at his wisdom, astounded at his teaching. And remember Luke chapter four, and they were beside themselves as to the gracious words that he laid down in his preaching and teaching. So Christ had a um, he had a um, reputation for edifying people. But that edification also came with admonishment, and that's what we see in the text. So what I am saying to you is on any occasion, uh, you might have a micro assignment where your job is to speak to someone. The aim would be to get their ear, wouldn't it? That they would be attentive to you. 
They will be attentive to you. So I'm going to make an application here and go to our third point. Would it be right for us to say if Christ is a model for us and we're going to a scenario that basically is consigned to judgment? And we're going in there to talk to eternity bound souls that the right disposition of our heart should be one of weeping for them. So I'm giving you a set of axioms that we can derive from this event. Christ does not go in there as a warmonger. I'm making an application because some of you guys know where I'm, where I'm at with what's taking place today. He's not going in there as a warmonger. He is a prophet. He does see the future. He is stating to them, if you continue down this course, then you are going to miss your opportunity. Wouldn't you warn somebody if you love them? Of course you would. So he's weeping for them. I mean, just take a moment and pause. The master who is about to be killed by them is weeping for them. You see that paradox? See that tension there? All right. It's not that hard to perceive that you can weep for somebody who ultimately hates you. Did that come home? Right. I want you to grasp with that for a moment, just for a little bit of a moment, because you and I should be able to elicit from our master's model. That's the reason why he's the invisible. Yah- he's the visible Yahweh. He models for us assignments that we may be called to wherein we don't get to have the convenience of the people to whom we're going liking us. Lord, I'll only go if these people like me. <laughs> I only go if these people are pop. I'm popular with these people. That's American Christianity, by the way. That's not missionary work. Real missionary work goes to people who will misunderstand you and sometimes persecute you and sometimes kill you and then eat you. Okay, we know the missionaries who have been to Papua New Guinea and different places and have suffered cannibalism as a expression of victory over the enemy who has come into our territory, as it were, to bring another God. Uh, and, and, and later on, uh, those same barbarians become Christians, realizing that that missionary was bringing a message of redemption and hope to them. Does that make some sense? You guys know who I'm talking about. So, so, so here we see our model, our master modeling the same thing. So when we're talking about gifts of edification, and that's the title of our study, a mature body serving in love does what? Edifies. Our goal is to see people built up in the faith. So sub point A under point number two, speaking that men may hear. Sub point B, speaking that men may what? respond, right? So not just hear, respond. Give you one example for what we call um, uh, the uh, Protestant movement of um, Christ-centered Bible-based preaching and teaching. So in our churches, this goes all the way back to the 16th century, 17th, 16th century, right? With our high churches. Uh, In our churches, the pulpit generally is in the center of the stadium, of, of the stage, right? And so what that means is the pulpit becomes the place where the word is communicated to the auditors. It becomes central to the nature of worship. The pulpit does. Go to Nehemiah chapter eight for me. So central to the worship is the pulpit. Okay. And, and historically, the pulpits, when they were properly employed as a symbol of the platform, this is Second Timothy 3.16, um, 
in second, first Timothy chapter, um, yeah, first Timothy chapter three, 16, um, the word of God becomes a, 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 a pillar and ground of the truth. That's what Paul says. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. And what that is, is we place the word of God on a, uh, on a pulpit in order that it sits there as an authority over the people of God. So symbolically, what you and I are doing is having a conversation with God through the medium of scripture as it's expounded, which I'm about to briefly do with you to build on the idea of edification. Does that make some sense? So our pulpits in our Protestant churches were in the center of worship. Prior to that, the pulpit was on the side. Our high churches, our Anglican churches, our Catholic churches, our what they were called sacerdotal or hyper symbolic churches, our ritualistic churches, the pulpit was on the side. And what was in the center and all around the auditorium were icons and images and artifacts for them to look at. Because as you guys know, to to be a um, to be a non-Protestant Christian, you only had the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church. And both of them are given to hyper symbolism in the area of the ritual of the whole room being just uh, gilded with angels and gilded with saints as statues everywhere and gilded with all kinds of historical uh, emblems. You guys do know something of that nature. You go into any really... Um, fairly uh, expensive Catholic church, you're going to get the same thing. Everywhere you go, you're going to see images and icon and incense and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. All of that is for a full sensory, if you will, experience of something that doesn't necessarily constitute a propositional truth claim premise, right? We could go into that. I didn't mean to do anything, but share with you the origins of why we practice in our Protestant churches, a central pulpit. And it's generally a pulpit of wood. So a pulpit of wood is is the way that Nehemiah puts it. I'm in Nehemiah chapter eight, and I'm going to just walk you through a few verses so you can get an idea of the origin of our uh, practices. Nehemiah lays this out for us. We're headed towards one more point, but for those of you who are new, you can you can now answer the question as to um, why our Protestant churches worship and teach the way we do. Why is the pulpit in the center? So <clears throat> here's the way that Nehemiah uh, puts it in Nehemiah chapter eight. Um, I'm going to start in verse one. I'll make my way to verse eight. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. This is in Jerusalem. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could do what? All that could hear with a what? Understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. You think I preach long. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ear of all the people were what? To hear the book of the law. So if you if you just take just that reading, what you understand is that there was a gathering like we do every Sunday. A remembering, the members of the body being remembered, brought together. There was a gathering and there was the word of God brought to bear in the gathering. 
And the people in the gathering had ears to hear. And the people in the gathering were there to receive an understanding. It wasn't for unintelligible people. It really wasn't for little bitty babies. It was for old enough for men and women to be able to actually hear. So this would be called an adult worship service. Does that make sense? All right, so follow this through. Look at verse four. I'm just gonna walk it through and you'll see. I think I'm gonna make way to verse nine. So Ezra the scribe stood upon a what? Stood upon a what? A pulpit of glass. Okay. A pulpit of marble, a pulpit of epoxy. You know, you, you, you got all these different kind of pulpits. I remember when they started showing up in the 70s and 80s. How many of you guys remember that? The, the, the clear plexiglass pulpit that showed up. I said, okay, I know that church getting ready to go straight apostate. Why? Why was the plexiglass there? In order to give more emphasis to the full presence of the person speaking than what the wood symbolized as a platform for scripture. There was technically and biblically and theologically no reason for a glass, plexiglass platform other than to see the whole body. Did that make some sense? And, and you, can, you can follow the trends. If you know solid, sound doctrine, you can follow the trends. You can follow people who prefer plexiglass platforms and people who have wooden platforms. You can follow, you can, you can look at, this is not axiomatic. This is not what we would call a, a perfect analogy because of course you can have heretics in a wooden pulpit too, believe you me. But when we started drifting away from uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 as a paradigm, it was all about the celebrity preacher. And once we went from a wooden platform to a plexiglass platform, this is when we accelerated in women preachers at the same time. <clears throat> because now it's about exhibition instead of exposition. Did that make some sense? It's about now showmanship rather than the proclamation of the word of God from a sober standpoint of the ear hearing. This is all about the eye seeing now. What kind of suit he has on, how he's gilded in his suit. And believe me, carnal people love to look at every detail of your dress from your shoes to the soles on your shoes, all the way to your haircut and certainly what you're wearing on your hand and all the details of your suit. All of that is super distracting, means nothing in terms of value in the eyes of God. Am I making some sense? So and, and actually it will actually keep you from hearing the word. And so the text tells us, and Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they made for that purpose. Okay. And beside him stood the, these people here are what are called teachers. Their job was to go throughout the tens of thousands of people who had come there and help them understand what uh, Ezra was reading. These were priests. Okay. 
Besides him stood Mattathia, Shema, uh, Shema uh, uh, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand and on his left, Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, uh, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. These are all, look at verse five. These are people there to help. And Ezra opened the book of the law in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. So the pulpit was like where I am. I am measurably above you. And that's in order for you to have a visibility, particularly if you're a large audience, okay, for you to have a visibility. And when he opened it, all the people did what? Now, that's a that is a description that is not a prescription. So in some of your churches, people stand up and others, they don't. We don't stand up here because we don't go through a bunch of bodily exercises. okay? but if a person wants to stand up, they certainly can. It's not a law. That's just what they did. okay? Now, notice what it says. Verse six. I'll show you this. This is something I taught many years ago in our old church about a biblical based worship service. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered amen and amen with the lifting up of their hands. So that was one form of worship expression. Y'all got that? Again, this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive, meaning it's not a mandate, but it's not prohibited. But notice what else he says. They lifted up their hands and then they what? Bowed their heads. So you had people bowing their heads. Again, it's a descriptive. It's not a mandate. Right. You know, if you're in a worship service and you're visiting a church, I I really recommend that you don't bow your head and close your eyes. You don't know what's going on in that church. I was preaching in Jamaica one day. Can I tell you the story? I was preaching in Jamaica one day. And as I was preaching, I heard a shout and one of our Jamaican sisters was saying, stop, because somebody was trying to go in her purse. You know, in those places, when you when you pray and you pray with your eyes open, you pan the whole room and you hold your stuff close to you. It really did happen. It really did happen. I said, "Woo!" Um, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse seven, let's walk this through. Just want to walk it through. And then here are the other names. And notice what it says. And the Levites, did, they did what? They caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their places. It was, it was what has been described by theologians and scholars over many, many years of Bible commentaries. One of the most vivid descriptions of a spirit-filled worship service, a Bible-based God-exalting worship service there could be. Why do we say that? Because the emphasis was on the pulpit. The emphasis was on the scripture. The emphasis was on the reading of scripture. The emphasis was on the explanation of scripture. It was on the pulpit where the scriptures were. It was in the reading of the scripture. It was in the explaining of the scripture. And it was in the receiving of the explanation of the scripture. And nobody was fudging, fudging, moving, getting up, walking around, leaving out. That can only happen when the spirit of God really has gripped you. Like the idea of being in a um, worship service where God is speaking through his word. You only really know that you're submissive to it as if he gives you grace to be attentive to it. So I'm going back to Luke 19. And you and I know this. If you come in distracted, you're probably not going to get anything out of the teaching. 
If you don't prepare your heart to hear what's being said, you can go through the whole event. And when you go away, you won't even be able to explain what the fundamentals of that message was was about, let alone what God may have had to say to you. Am I making some sense? And remember, they were there early in the morning, all the way up to noon. One more verse, Nehemiah 8, 8, maybe verse 9, 2. So they read in the book of the law of God, what? That is with the kind of clarity that we're talking about, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. You guys see that? Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Um, here it is. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershitha, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, taught the people, said unto all the people, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Do not mourn. Do not weep. Watch this. For all the people wept when they heard the word of the Lord. How come, pastor? Because of what it said. How come, pastor? Because they understood what it said. And the spirit of God took that word and did what John 16, 8 says. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will convince the world of sin. They, they knew that God was talking to them. So for these people on that day, it was not merely a bodily exercise. God had wrought repentance in their heart for their behavior. When they heard the law read, they knew it was an indictment of their behavior. This is where we are in Joshua 24, are we not? Where Joshua is telling them, no, 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 no. You cannot worship the Lord your God if you think you're going to worship him plus a bunch of other things which is what, you know, we're going to unpack that a little bit more on Sunday. But notice what the priests are having to do, what the Levites are having to do. The Levites are having to comfort the people now that they have been broken by the truth of the word of God and convicted by the spirit. He's letting them know there is forgiveness with God. There's cleansing, there's mercy, but cleansing and mercy and forgiveness really only comes to people who are of a broken and contrite heart. This worship service was powerful in that day. Okay, good. That's the example I wanted to lay out. Would we say those people were edified? Massively. Massively. Now let's go to our third point. The next one will be on order. I want to talk about this one briefly and we'll open up the floor. Order. I've talked about this one before. This one is going to make, uh, you know, a lot of sense. And And it actually will help purge you and me of some of the empty sort of silliness that we have around uh, worship, period. Because, um, you know, in America, we have been kind of on a downgrade from order and structure ever since I was born. Let me see if I can help you. We're getting ready to unpack this. Let me go back. What do I mean by uh, on a downgrade? We have been gradually dissembling from the kind of behavior that indicates that we have profited from structure and discipline and, um, and the capacity for reasoning things through with a sense of orderliness and a sense of competency. We have been living since the 60s in a kind of um, free fall of folly and engagement in a kind of loose living that is described by a word that did not used to really be dominant in our culture. Do you know what that word is? Fun. So stay with me for a moment. I, I, you know, I don't have anything against having fun. 
but it's not a biblical concept. F-U-N is not a biblical concept. And like fun is not the same thing as joy. Okay, so let me help you help you with that. So this is how the enemy often works. And, and if we get our categories right, we can use words. If you get your category wrong, you can actually harm people with your words. Like, I think it's all right for children to have fun. I don't think it's all right for adults to have fun when it's not time for fun. Like, there should be a place for fun And even that fun for the people of God should be a disciplined fun, if that makes sense. Right. Because you can engage in a kind of fun that actually lowers the quality of your character at the level of your thinking and at the level of your behavior. Am I making some sense? You can be part of an atmosphere that's called fun, 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 and it drains you of dignity. And it actually zaps you of discernment and it opens you up to, again, shallow thinking. And it will have a kind of assault on your mind. You guys will know this because I'm getting ready to talk to you about the difference between the term order here. If you guys don't mind, before we go into our q and I'm going to talk to you about the term order versus the term chaos. That is the uh, fundamental uh, running theme in our study, is it not? Order out of what? Right, and these are two different words that Paul is getting ready to talk about in our text. So when when we talk about how propositions can be propagandized and they can be weaponized to destroy the legitimacy of things that God allows us to be, one of them can definitely be the contrast between... Con, I'm going to use con, between joy and what? Fun, okay? And, and you can build a whole bunch of them, but whereas you will find the word joy all through your Bible, you will never find the word fun, and it does not mean that in the, in the sense of um, obviously the term fun was not a word that was even invented or known until the last couple of two or three centuries. OK, I, I totally get that. But I'm just saying the connotation, if I were to have an equivalent, fun would have probably been in the scriptures, the, <laughs> the word folly. OK, probably folly. Does that make sense? Folly is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. So now again, you know, I just want to have fun. And that, that fun can be what Paul talked about in first Corinthians chapter in Ephesians chapter five, the kind of behavior that is called foolish gesturing. Do you guys remember that? Ephesians five, verse three, just pull it up. I'll read a couple of that while we're getting ready to deal with our last point here. We got a, a few more minutes. So what Paul was saying to the believer, um, He says, avoid fornication, all forms of uncleanness, which also the whole concept of fun creates the danger of breaching gaps and opening the door for uncleanness. Did that make some sense? Right. So like if you're not careful about fun, it will cause you to let your guards down and it will open you up to pathways that are not really becoming of children of the living God. That makes some sense. Right. So but fornication, all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become its saints. Verse four. Here it is. Ephesians five, four. 
neither filthiness nor what? Nor what? There it is. So jesting now is the next level. Jesting is where you you're not content with just kind of light talk. Your talk now is weaponized in the context of fun and it's meant to be pejorative. Do I have to break that down? Y'all got that? And, and you, you, you know people who shift from light humor to that kind of sipid, painful, toxic humor that, inc- that implies that they've got a problem. That makes sense, right? You go, oh, man, this is, that's, this is an asset to what they just said. There, there's a, there's a <clears throat> toxicity to what they just said. There's a bitterness to what they just said. There's a, there's a tonality and an expression that is more than a kind of lighthearted joke. They are now being painfully injurious. Am I making some sense? Right, and it's really important for you and I to pick up on that because again, language is multi-layered, is it not? It's not just what is rhetorically spoken. It's also what is tonally expressed. It's also what is emotionally emitted. Multiple levers, levels. Like this, one thing can be said in a very um, aloof and monotone fashion, and it's just propositionally what it is on its surface. The same thing can be said with a kind of tonation and emotional thrust that can make it say something different. And by the way, I've immediately slid into different language genre dynamics. You guys know that. The same Hebrew word expressed in a certain kind of tone can give you the reverse meaning of that Hebrew word or that Arabic word or in any number of linguistic cultures around the world. Uh, Japanese is that way. Korean is that way. If you say a certain word in Japanese with the wrong tonation, you offend people. Okay, so it's so we're talking about language at multiple levels. Y'all know this. And women are often more sensitive around these things than men are. But we can be, too. So what Paul says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient. I love that. What Paul is saying is is not appropriate. It doesn't edify. But rather giving of of thanks, that becomes a real evidence when a person is really uh, thankful. So I I moved into the pastoral mode. Go with me back to first Corinthians chapter um, 14 so we can just deal with this last point briefly. There are a few examples I want to show. I'm going to be in verse 33 through 40 on this because this is where Paul begins to lock down his argument for how you properly handle the gift of languages. He's going to talk about order. And he's going to talk about it from the standpoint of uh, how God's churches should carry themselves. First Corinthians 14, verse 33. Listen to what he says over here. I'm in first Corinthians 13, 33. And really, uh, I'm, I'm actually drawing some conclusions here and I should actually go back up. So I'll start back here at verse. I'll start at verse 33. Then I'm going to back up, argue for order. Notice what he says. For God is not the author of what? But of what? As in all the churches of, uh, of the saints. So when Paul says God is not the author of confusion, it's it's 
It's something that they would have known, but I'm not sure you and I would pick up on it because we're using an anglicized word when we talk about confusion. But I, I think we can I think we can use it. But I actually want to show you why there is another way to understand this word, because this word is being used in our text. Uh, chaos is being used in our text, our confusion which is the same thing. Confusion is being used in our text in verse 33 in preparation for the use of the word order in verse 40. So let me build that argument. Verse 33 is given to us, right? And verse 33 tells us, for God is not the author of confusion. Literally, the author is an italicist, is not really there. But confusion is not of God as an ontological characteristic. And just because you guys are in class, let me teach you a little bit around ontology. Ontos is the Greek Latin term for essence. Okay, Um, when a thing is understood for what it is in its essence, it is ontologically a thing like God ontologically is spirit. Does that make some sense? Right. So when we talk about Pneuma, we're talking about Ruah, which is the Hebrew term. We don't know what we talking about. I just want to lay that down to you now. I've asked people for years. So what is spirit? Y'all keeping up with me? Define spirit for me. okay? and then you're going to end up using a few analogies, but that's not really defining it at the ontological and what we call the denotative level. You may give an analogy but you can't really define what spirit is. Did that make some sense? I want you to think about it. Be humbled by it because it, it, it makes sense that if God says he's spirit and I can't really define it, that's a great way to describe God. Okay, just, just letting you know, okay? I mean, he's more than spirit, but at the ontological level, what God is saying is he is not graspable like the wind is graspable. You can't box him in. You can't definitively and comprehensively define God in nomenclature and terms that will give you a full scope and composite of what he is. You and I, whenever we're describing God, we're describing God from the standpoint of attributes. And attributes are different than essences. Attributes are expressions of essences. Essences are their own properties, okay? I'm getting into theological terminology, but but your spirit knows what I'm talking about. Just like you know that there's more to you than your physical body, even though you can't explain it. All right. So that's a whole this is called phenomenology, by the way, in terms of a, a classification of study around the things that are that we are trying to get a grip on. So the Bible tells us that everything that God created is a testimony of his eternal Godhead and power so that every conscious moral agent creature is without excuse. That's Romans chapter 1, 18 and 19. You guys do know that, right? So let me argue for what God is saying right quick. And then we'll go on with the chaos and order thing. Because I'm hoping I'm teaching you guys at the level of edification and building you up. Here, when Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says... um, For the creation testifies for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 19. 
uh, because that which may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. Paul is arguing they can't get away. Verse 20, you got to walk with me so I can get to the verse. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen. So, okay, now we got a problem. Because he's saying the invisible things of him are clearly seen. That is a paradoxical statement. How can invisible things be clearly seen? By the things that are made, they infer something else behind them. Does that make some sense? Right. So notice what he says. Being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? Right. So all we're talking about here, if we want to reduce it down to a category, is seen things explain unseen things. That's called science. Across a plethora of disciplines, science explains what is visible, phenotypical expression as having something behind it that brought it into being. Does that make some sense? Right, so we labor archaeologically to find out why a thing is. Get behind that thing. Find out what its rudiments are, what its fundamentals are, what its stoike is, because it has expressed itself, but we sense there's more to that expression. A human being is more than a physical body with a neurological, physiological mechanism running through a sack of flesh. We, we know that intuitively, do we not? So we live at a higher level of consciousness because we know there's more to us than this physical body. Great arguments going on will continue to go on. Scientists are coming to understand there's more to us than our physical body. And this is what God would argue. Of course there is, because I made you. Right, so you and I are dealing with that. But <clears throat> if in fact you and I are dealing with chaos, which is what verse 33 says, Verse 40, go back to our text. Verse 40 says these words. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Let all things be done, what? Decently and in order. Let me see. Look, look at verse um, 41. Okay, look, verse 39. Okay, so then verse 40 is the verse we want to look at when we go back. So let's go back to verse 33, confusion. Um, this term is written this way in the Greek language, atakatasis, akatasis. Um, and this ha- actually has to be three words here. Uh, let me see, atakatasis. Um, yes, um, the Greek term for uh, confusion there is three words. One of them is a prefix, and it means to uh, negate, like apostasy. Whenever we use the negative prefix a, it means to take away, not, not. All right, and then we have the um, the root kata. This is actually a preposition too. Preposition. The preposition kata means down, down, or it's the idea of fall to fall. So uh, akata means not a thing that is not, a thing that is uh, falling or falling. And stasis is the Greek word for standing. And when that, when those three are put together, atakastasis, that's really what it is. Akatastasis. Let me get that right for you before somebody um, emails me and say, pastor, this is what it was. 
Akatastasis is the idea of standing because you have a structural foundation under you and then starting to fall apart. Akatastasis. You begin to fall down. And to fall down is the idea of being confused. Right. So it's time for us to work through that and understand that a little bit. When he says, for God is not the author of systems falling down, falling apart. Then what it's saying is the falling apart that goes on in our world was the consequence of an instigation that God allowed. And we know that because the instigator himself is the tempter, Satan. So when we talk about apostasy or falling apostasies, that's the same idea of the stasis to apostasize apostasies. That is the idea to fall away, right? To fall away. It means to leave the faith, to depart from the faith. To uh, akatastasis means to deconstruct or fall apart. It means to disintegrate. And what God is saying through the through the Apostle Paul about our local churches is that he's not the God of disintegration. He's not the God of things falling apart. He's not the God of a group of people dissembling and, 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 and disintegrating and collapsing into a kind of chaos society that would describe the Tower of Babel, would it not? Right. So the the kind of dissembling of the tongues in Genesis 10 and 11 is what Paul is saying. You guys are advocating when you want to speak in a glossolalian and not have interpretation. You just want Babel to be everywhere where our society is filled with this Babel. Would you agree with that? It's filled with this babble, and therefore what we see are people not being able to stand logically, not being able to stand rationally, not being able to stand reasonably, not being able to stand in terms of relationships, not being able to stand in terms of cultures and society. So you can really take this and make this a big sort of meta-narrative when nations fall and when governments fall and when societies fall, they begin to collapse. That's our word again, okay? Collapse because they are in a state of confusion. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that that is not indicative of the churches of God. So over here in the area of order, we talked about this before. I want to just tap into this one briefly. And, uh, and I'll be done. We can chat a little bit. I hope you have some questions on it. I gave you this word because this is a term that's used in business. It's called taxonomy. Taxonomy. The root word is taxis. And taxis is the term we get for what? Order. 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 Any business major would know the principle of taxonomy. Governments operate out of a taxonomical system for governance. In fact, taxonomy is a term that has to be employed anytime you are setting up uh, gradations of priorities and gradations of structures, gradations of principles in order for a system to hold together. It has to have a taxonomical order to it. So when Paul uses the term uh, going back to verse um, 40, if you will, sis, because I want to take you to just two or three verses on that. Let all things be what? 
done decently and in order. Some translations are decently and in good order. Why does he use that phrase decently and in good order? Because the idea is that the people of God should function with a kind of dignity and character that does not belie a state of confusion and chaos. You can see the difference between a state of um, order and structure versus a state of chaos and, and, uh, and a failure to walk in a sense of dignity in a sense of comportment is actually a term that's describing an individual that recognizes that they have a responsibility before other people to behave in a certain way that does not cause them to stumble. This would be a dignitary. This would long ago, again, in, in our governments, we are so far from this now. We are so far from this. Are we not? We are so far from this. I'll nail it here. We can have some conversation. I know that we are dissembling in America. I know that when the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. I know that all my life I have seen people in positions of dignity, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4, walking like slaves. Instead of standing like princes, they're walking like slaves. And so uh, you'll know this in, in British culture and, and probably others as well. When you are a dignitary, when you're a prince or a princess, you're taught to behave certain kind of ways. You don't get to act indignantly. You don't get to talk profanely. You don't get to behave yourself in a fashion that disrespects your family. And of course, in, in the Christian culture, in fact, every religious culture used to have that kind of internal intrinsic ethic, did it not? Listen, you are a gistan, boy. You don't get to go out there and act a fool. You are representing me. Sweetheart, you're a gistan. This is how gistans behave themselves or whatever the case may be. In other words, to be decent and in good order means that you are functioning in a way that's representing not only you, but who you represent as well. That would make sense as a child of God, would it not? All right, so stay with me now. If that be true, and I know that it is, um, when we think about our society and we hear the addendum attached to it, this is a Judeo-Christian nation, right? And we think about Richard Nixon. We got a real contradiction here, right? Does anybody remember the Nixon days? You young people don't know unless you studied, you know, history and, and political science. Richard Nixon, you know. Your president is not a liar, right? And then he forgot to cut the tape off. See, and, and so you know, this is, where, this is where integrity comes in as well, right? So if behind the microphone in public, you know how to carry yourself with a little bit of decorum, but behind closed doors, you are cursing like a sailor and talking bad and real legitimate anti-Semitism, real legitimate black racism was pouring out of his whole being. I felt embarrassed for him when I listened to it. I said, "Woo, that brother was a straight up hypocrite. Then we move on to Mr. Uh, George W. Bush. And he forgot to cut the mic off, too. 
And if you heard him, you would hear him speaking in hypocrisy about the real atrocities that occurred in Iraq under this pseudo 9-11 thing too as well, when he was supposed to be a Christian also. See, Richard Nixon was a so-called Christian. He was a Presbyterian. George W. Bush was a Christian. He's supposed to have been a Methodist. Y'all got that? George H. Bush, his wife, too. They, they all were supposed to be Christians. I told you, anytime you headed to the White House, you got to get you a big old fat black Bible with a big old cross on it. Right. You can let everybody know you're a Christian. Did that make some sense? And, but when you catch them behind closed doors, indecent and out of order. Now, you know, I thought it was pretty bad. I mean, I couldn't actually believe that your boy, you know, uh, Bill Clinton got in the office. Because all of the fiasco and, and, and hoopla around his uh, stint as governor of Arkansas, if you guys remember some of that, and the scandals that he was involved in, not decent and not orderly. But he called himself a Christian, too. And him and Hillary would go to church once a month. You know, she swears she's a Christian. Did y'all, did y'all get that? Right. And, and we can go all the way up the ladder. We get to Obama. People don't want to tell the truth about Obama. But we saw that he was without order, without decency. And he got in and stayed in there for about two years. And the next thing you know, the White House is the Rainbow House. And it indicated a number of fundamentals around his own picadillos and behavior patterns. Now, it seems funny, but what I'm sharing with you is as the leaders, so are the people. So my society reflects a decadence. A decadence. And of course, we could be here all night long if I talked about preachers. Could we not? From Jimmy Swaggart on up. I'm only using that era because that was the era in which when I was a teenager, 18 years old, God began to deal with me. And I really struggled through people professing to be believers, behaving in ways that were completely unseemly. Well, that's denoting confusion. And now after 42 years in the faith now, I look at my society and think about where it was then compared to where it is now. And we needed to heed the warning that legitimate preachers were giving back then because look how bad it is today. Am I making some sense? Right. And we could extrapolate this across the world because your Bible lays it out very clear. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. But the point is that as we're looking at um, order, What Paul is telling the church at Corinth is that God demands that you and I walk in a level of decency and decorum that indicates that when people come into our presence, we are serving someone more than ourselves. That makes sense. That makes sense. Here's how the term is used. It's used as a a temple motif. This is Luke chapter one, verse eight. You'll see it. This here has to do with the Levitical priest and their service in the temple. Notice what it says. This is, and it came to pass that, that while he was executing his priest office, this would be um, Zechariah, before God in the order of his course. You guys see that? In the order of his course, the priest would uh, labor in the temple. Like every, uh, every priest would have his order every two months in the temple. They would order by course, 12 priests by course. They would order they would have to work in the temple. This was obviously his order. This term is also used in um, five more times in the book of Hebrews. I don't want to take you there, but the terminology would be the order of Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek had an order. So we had the Levitical order, we had the Aaronic order, Aaronic order, and then we had the Melchizedekian order. And what that means is when Melchizedek was the high priest of Jerusalem at that time, he had to function according to a set of protocols as a priest would do because he's under a system of laws. Here's another expression of this term in the Old Testament. Here's where we'll begin to close. This is in the temple. And this would be in Leviticus 24, verses 5 through 9. This has to do with the showbread in the temple. And God told Israel to build the temple a particular way. We talked about that, right? He talked about what kind of material to use, what was the dimensions and size of all of the articles in the temple. You know, we we can go into that into detail. In other words, it wasn't arbitrary and it wasn't chaotic. It was structural, orderly, and it was procedural. He says here in Leviticus 24, 5, and we're going to walk this through, and you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes thereof. Why? Representing who? The 12 tribes of Israel. The priests are mediating in the stead of the people. Remember, the Levites are in the stead of the people. Two tenth deals shall be one cake. These are loaves. Verse six. I want to walk it through so you can see. You shall set them in two what? Two rows, six in a row. So you got one row with six and another row with what? Six representing the 12 divided by two, six and six upon the pure table before the Lord. What does he mean? Pure table before the Lord up against the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant is where God's Shekinah or his glory, his Chabad would dwell. So the table is there made out of pure gold and two loaves of bread are set there. Now, there's another article that's sitting up against those loaves of bread that's right up against the veil before you go into the see the Ark of the Covenant, of which only one person could go in there one time a year. Yom Kippur. What's his name? The high priest. Right. Only the high priest could go in. But it says before the Lord, because the tabernacle was for Jehovah. It was for Yahweh. So the bread is for his glory. So I'm going to make an application to us. OK, in a in a second here. Look at verse seven. Verse seven, and you shall put pure frankincense in each what row that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. One more verse. Every Sabbath, he shall set it in what order before the Lord? How long? Continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. So the priest was to bring God bread. In the same way, the priest brought the sacrifices to God. When the sacrifices were offered morning, evening, and noon, a portion of the sacrifice was burnt as a burnt offering. A portion of it was poured out. The blood was poured out as a uh, uh, outpouring offering, a, 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 a oblation offering to God. And a portion of it was to be given to the priest to eat. A portion of the fat was to be put on the altar to be consumed up before God as well. So the metaphor is a fellowship between God and the priest around a sacrifice that's being offered up that appeases God for sin, but also brings us into fellowship with God via that sacrifice. Did that make some sense? So the sacrifice is a picture of who? Jesus. We, he's being offered up as an atonement for our sin, but he's also the meal offering that we have between us and God. So that's the flesh or the meat, but then there's the bread that's on the altar, six loaves 
in roles divided before God. So God sees those lows, does he not? All right. And so immediately when we get to the New Testament, we're dealing with the order of the Lord. What does Jesus do? He takes the loaves of bread and he divides them among his disciples and 3,000 and 5,000 plus women and children eat of the loaves, do they not? And in the New Testament explicitly, Jesus says, I am the what? I'm the bread of life, right? So we are feeding on Christ typologically, but he's to be offered to the Lord as a set of approval done in an orderly fashion by which God says, yes, this pleases me because you're doing it by faith unto me. So the idea of order in the worship service is in order that the people might actually be able to track with what's going on on a propositional level and things become clearer and clearer in the teaching when that is done. So that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 14. I feel like it's time for us to stop. Uh, Raise your hand if you guys have an observation you want to make. Otherwise, okay, we'll have a few and then we'll, we'll shut it down. So just uh, remember as you, as you make the mics around, what Paul is doing in the teaching of, of the gift of languages is making sure that we don't disarray into chaos, that we don't disarray into a kind of empty rhetoric in a kind of exhibition that, that demonstrates we're kind of dissembling into foolishness and, and disarray, if that makes any sense. Do you have the mic? What's your observation or question? Before um, we the out? thing that I saw, thought about tonight was that, um, that words are, are servants that need to be controlled and directed. A um, few, few more points. That my words are valuable and not worthless because you know, sometimes I don't want to say what needs to be said or what I think needs to be said. Um, yeah, sometimes I'm ashamed of my words. You know, even, even you know, times that I've been here, I've wanted to say things, but I said, oh, well, I better, I better not say anything. But I think the main thing is that, that they, my words, just like, my, just like you were talking about how God made us in his image, but he gave us word, he gave us the ability to speak too. So these words that we have can be used and they need to be managed and used and not, we shouldn't be afraid of the words. The first part, I totally agree with you. The second part, I would slightly disagree with you. You should be afraid of the words. Uh, in this sense, I think you're using the word afraid in a certain kind of way that's limited. You, you want to be careful with your words. So you don't want to, you don't want to be careless with your words um, because by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. And first, uh, uh, Proverbs 15 is a great place to go that talks about um, the impact, good or bad, around words. So I just want to say a caveat for a a very common uh, challenge that people have that my brother just noted. So the Bible would tell you and me this. If you talk too long, be sure you're going to sin. I'm giving you as as general an interpretation as possible. In the many, in the speaking of many words, there is not going to lack sin. Like if you just talk too much, be sure you're going to say something that's not right. Does that make sense? Of course. 
And that's why controlling your words is really critical. That's one thing I want to say about it. Secondly, some people are actually smarter than they know to not say as much as they think they want to say. I'm going to say that one more time. Some people are smarter than they know to not say what they think they should say. Right, because the Bible says a fool is known by the words that come out of his mouth. But if he holds his peace, he at least appears to be wise because he hasn't opened his mouth. Here's another piece of wisdom which I, I love. This is Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Let your words be few. Anything after that is open up to levels of evil. Y'all know this is true, what I'm saying, right? Almost all arguments between any person or any nation is an excess of words that come indiscriminately and carelessly and just one extra wrong word leads to war. So this is why, you know, James was saying, James chapter four, let not many of you be teachers as well, receiving greater condemnation because we all offend in words. We're all going to offend, right? So one, the in, intuitiveness to go, no, nah, I'm not going to say it, is way wiser than saying it and offending someone. And then now you got to go back and, and work that thing out. Does that make some sense? So if you were having batting averages, you would probably be considered a wise person because you're not just opening your mouth and letting it pour out and just telling people how you feel. Um, you might just want to ask God to give you grace to work on um, having a better motivational. Make sure your motivation is right. And, and therefore, make that it will help you with the methodology of when and when not to say and, and then what to say and how to say it when you say it. All of those matter. Timing is everything. Um, great, great, great. Who, who else has to my great observation? All right, Jackie, is the mic on? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, my question, well, thank you for the teaching on gifts. It's really, really helpful for me because um, the motivation part comes through love. And even if we have gifts that they have to be through faith, through Christ, and through his love. That's when they're manifested um, properly, I want to say. And I wanted to ask you about um, speaking in tongues. What I heard was um, in the teaching is that it's different languages from different people, and people are able to interpret it. But my question is that when I hear um, or heard ministers say that speaking in tongues is evidence of the Holy Spirit, is that a different language? Or? Well, that proposition is flat out wrong. Okay. Just flat out wrong. Um, speaking in tongues... Well, the, the phrasing is speaking in tongues is an evidence of your salvation. That's what they're saying. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in, in the terms of the glossolalia, our languages that we have here, um, 
one has to ask a really interesting question that I'm going to put out here now, and this has to do with narratives, period. This is the first thing that I'm going to put out. If a person says, A is this, that, you know, what it means to speak in tongues look like what's going on in your general Pentecostal assembly. That A, that experience in the general uh, Pentecostal assembly is equivalent to B, what we see in scripture. What we have done now is taken an event outside of scripture and used it as a definition for what's going on inside of scripture so that we are assuming that the scriptures and that event in category A are one in the same. Did that make some sense? So let me help you with that. What I mean by that is just because you hear people going through some kind of expression and they call that a heavenly language doesn't mean that that which you saw them doing is that which you saw the people in the scriptures doing. You have to make a clear categorical distinction because what's going on in the scriptures is not explained in terms of how it happened. What's explained in there is that they simply spake in languages. In some cases, those that heard them understood them speaking in their own languages, right? We've already stated that. So in our general Pentecostal churches, whenever you hear that expression, that banter, that, that, that babble or whatever they're doing, it almost is never accompanied by interpretation. Stay with me. So all you have is a kind of part A of a expression of language that makes the rest of us barbarians because we have absolutely no idea what they're saying. That's that's really uh, the first thing that you have to be able to make a distinction of. I'm going to share with you what I mean by that and what goes on in our media in a moment. If I give you a presentation and tell you that this presentation A equals presentation B, I am making the assumption that I know exactly what presentation B is. And I'm assuming that if you take my presentation A and use it as a model, now you know what presentation B is. But when somebody comes along and say, "Uh uh-uh, hold on, you don't have a description of how it sounded. All you have is the language that they spoke in tongues. Does that make some sense? Right. You have no. And then, you know, we've argued this for years when it comes to the issue of speaking in glossolalia or in languages. You got people speaking all kind of wild, crazy stuff all around the world without any kind of uniformity, without any kind of coherence. One group does it this way. Another group does it that way. You have it also going on outside of the Christian religion. So, you know, speaking in tongues happens in the Indian culture. It happens in the Hindu culture. It happens among the shaman. It happens in all kinds of cultures outside of the church. So immediately the question is, which one is it? If your Bible doesn't give you explicit clarity on how it is to be practiced, you have to be very careful that what has now been given to you in category A or exhibit A is a pagan expression that doesn't comport with the details given to you in part B, which is a biblical description, if that makes any sense. 
So, you know, I've always argued, be very careful, particularly when you're hearing them do this and they're violating the fundamental scripture. Paul said, if you're going to be speaking in a language, you better have an interpreter or don't do it in the church. Isn't that what he said? So every time you hear it done by the pastors or the people, at best, they're sinning. Did you hear me? Every time they do it, they are explicitly sinning against Scripture. So what I'm I'm trying to set you up for, the media propaganda machine that you and I are subject to every day, all day long, throughout the world, 24-7, giving you images, giving you events, giving you expressions, whereby you and I just assume they're telling us the truth. Am I making some sense? We're assuming they're telling us the truth because we don't have a grid by which to test them. And we just swallow it hook, line, and sinker. So if on TBNN, TBN, you're watching these guys speaking in tongues all day, every day, you just assume that that's the Holy Ghost. Until somebody comes along and tells you, wait a minute. If that were the Holy Ghost, why is he letting so many people sin the way they're sinning by speaking in a language without an interpretation? Did that make some sense? Sure it does. It's a gift of the spirit, isn't it? If the gift of languages is a gift and the gift of interpretation of languages is adjacent right next to it, why aren't there just as many interpreters of the language standing up, giving interpretation to the expression that's going on all around the church. I'm making a good argument, am I not? See, and I'll tell you what I taught many years ago around this. This is what I taught. Babylon does not edify, and the fact that they're doing it so much is is not meant for you to be edified. Because if it was meant for you to be edified, you get an understanding of the contents of that Babel. Right, because prophecy is edifying. If a person rises up and says, she over there that spent three minutes speaking in a heavenly language was saying this. That person now is legitimately laying out the scriptural interpretation of what she's saying. Now, the person that's actually exercising what is called the interpretation of tongues, they are more culpable than the person over there babbling. Because now they both may be complicit in a propaganda event, duping you that you are in a space where the Holy Spirit had showed up in the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation. I say that because that was my first experience growing up in the um, Christian men's fellowship uh, in the Baptist church where they had these two people in the church. One would always speak in a tongue and the other one would stand up and interpret Right. And I thought it was just the holiest thing. And I'm only 17 years old. And then after about three or four weeks in the church, I say, wait a minute. She just said the same prophecy over and over and over again in English. Something's weird. He's over here babbling and she's saying the same thing. And then, you know, she's impressing us because she's speaking in old Elizabethan King James English. Rather than just modern language, can you just speak in modern language? Is, is that okay? So I already knew that something was going, going on that was a little fishy. Does that make some sense? Because you don't need to act like you're godly if you're just going to explain what the sister said. 
And by the way, can we get another brother that has the gift of interpretation? Why does it have to be you two in a 300 person community? Am I making some sense? Well, later on, all kind of stuff came out about the chicanery in the church. This is why yeah, I'm very cynical of church activities, quite frankly, because it's all designed often to hoodwink you in areas in which you may have not the capacity of discerning what's going on. And the best you'll do is go away and say, I don't know what happened. I guess they had the Holy Ghost. I don't know. And the best thing for you to do is not to commit to anything that you don't understand. Who has the mic? Uh, how do you, how do we, how do we love them and weep for them when they, they hurt us, they hate us, and they persecute us. Yeah, you still got still to gotta find a way to see them as under eternal jeopardy and needing to be saved just like you and I do. Still got to find a way to recognize. I mean, the question at the empathetic level is, is so super germane. I get that. We all should get that, right? At the, at the fundamental level, her, Nile's question is extremely germane. Um, I don't know if you've ever been betrayed. If someone hurts you by stabbing you in the back. Have you been there? I've been there. And, and uh, that's my sister. She just fell asleep and fell off the chair. That's all that was. Uh, she, she, fell, she fell asleep. The heater had her so warm, she just nodded out on me and fell. Anyhow, um, Oh, she's going to throw ivory under the bus. He was over there. He was over there slobbing and fell on the heater. Um, the, the, the question is germane. The question is germane because I'm sending a lot of you guys material about what's going on over in the Middle East. And people want to act like our Palestinian brothers don't have a right to be mad. Then you're, you're telling those Palestinians to be superhuman. Right. Am I making some sense? Right. Wouldn't you get mad if somebody kicked you too many, two or three, four, five times? Right. Now, now Jesus still says you got to love them. And, and, but let's let's actually define it. Right. The the agape love that he's saying love them with is an objective love that transcends any direct personal filial relationship. Did you get that? Agape is a transcendent love. That does not necessitate a one-on-one direct filial emotional investment in the person. I can love you without liking you. Did that make some sense? Right. I've talked about this many, many times. So when we share the gospel, you're not going around sharing the gospel, uh, you know, having this great, deep, emotional investment in everybody you meet. You don't even know them. You, you, you don't need to pretend, oh, how I love you. No, you don't. Stop. I, I've talked about this for years. You, you know how you hear people say, I love everybody. No, you don't. Stop all that. Right. And I'll say another thing just to help liberate some of you from a an emotional love that has nothing to do with occupation. Like emotional love should definitely be reserved for mutual relationships that are edifying. Does that make sense? 
It should be, it should be preserved for relationships where it is mutual and reciprocative. That God is not telling you to have an emotional investment in a relationship with somebody that's trying to cut your head off or beat you down. But at the same time, you can still have a transcendent agape vertical love for them that they don't end up perishing under God's wrath because of them being outside of Christ. That makes sense. Doesn't that make sense? Hurry up and own it because, you know, if somebody does something wrong to your child and and natural rage emerges, that's a righteous anger for protection and preservation of that which is yours. You don't want the other person to go to hell, but you certainly are not having warm, fuzzy, fond feelings because they just hurt your child. That's so insane to assert. Right. And, and it would actually have a kind of Stockholm syndrome component to it if you had that kind of misguided, misprioritized love. Am I making some sense? You who love the Lord hate evil. If that's true, and it is, then if an evil is perpetrated, you're going to have a lot of abhorrence and anger towards that evil. Right. And you're going to have to learn how to create, you know, two degrees of separation between the evil done and the person that did it in order to hold a biblical perspective on punishing the sinner's sin while also hoping that it brings them to repentance and faith in Christ, that they don't perish under the wrath of God. That makes some sense. Right. If, if we misinterpret love like many communities have. You cannot be a well-rounded, biblically-based Christian. Did you get that? Anger has place. You know, abhorrence has place. Righteous justice has place. All of those qualities have place in a world where God demands that we operate in a moral, ethical framework that respects each other. Otherwise, being defrauded by someone that has more power over you will put you in an intolerable place when it comes to agape, when it comes to filio, when it comes to um, uh, eros, those kind of loves that are rooted in bringing us in proximity closer to each other. Filio is family love, affection. And that's going to be in a relationship where we have invested in each other deeply. Like even our physical brothers and sisters don't automatically earn or deserve our filios love. Y'all know what I'm saying is true. It's what's going on in the Middle East. They're literally brothers. So Phileos has to actually be the fruit of reciprocative relationship where we respect each other and we, uh, we guard each other and we promote each other and we engage each other. And therefore, when we uh, offend each other, we forgive each other and we talk to each other, even though we might be mad at each other. All of that encompasses a filial functional love of the brother. Did that make some sense? Right, because we can recover from that. All I'm talking about is any kind of relationship. A husband and wife has that all the time. You know, the husband wakes up in the morning begrudging. You know, by the time he gets home, he's happy and vice versa. By the time he gets home, he's happy, she's mad. And they got to work out that kind of cycle of... Um, you know, inner complexity around our emotional makeup, when we invest, when we pull back, how we give space, how we come together, how we talk it through, how we resolve. All of those are elements in a relationship. 
It cannot be this kind of static, sort of fictitious, phony modality that doesn't constitute human reality. I hope that's making sense to you guys. All right. James, so we can get out of here. Uh, Clarification on, earlier we were talking about fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, where would uh, a Mary Hart uh, fall in that category? being uh, happy if you will. Right. If, if you, a lexical interpretation of a merry heart is a heart that's full of joy, full of thanksgiving. Uh, a merry heart is going to be the heart that at the fundamental level is in a state of delightful contentment. Okay. Um, so the, the Proverbs would talk about uh, the merry heart being like a medicine. That brings about healing to the soul. Well, when we think of, when we think through merriment, we're thinking through a person living in a kind of state of fullness and delight and joy. So, so again, I don't see room for the word fun the way we define it. But if we want to give space for fun and I don't mind giving space for it, what I don't want to do with fun is to let fun take away from the sober, grounded, disciplined, structural kind of qualitative joy that an individual who is walking in the Lord and enjoying the fullness of his providences in his life and have a level of thanksgiving that leads to merriment. All right. So like you can have fun and and actually be a careless person that is not thankful at all. You know, there are a lot of things that can initiate and produce fun in our lives. And you can go, that was fun. But it may not necessarily reach the level of being something that was particularly godly or edifying. Y'all know what I'm saying. Well, but isn't it also possible you can still be full of joy, but also be unhappy? I mean, I mean, you know, happy and joy obviously don't necessarily go together, right? So, mm-hmm. you can be full of joy. Well, I mean, let's work have, that one through. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. You, you know, you said the joy that we have, you know, is what the Lord gives us. It can't be, you know, a person can't give you joy; they can't take it away. It's God's joy. The way I, I, I'm going to make sure I, I, I'm working. They can through. facilitate it. Okay, facilitate it. Right. Uh, Think about it. Think about it. So I want to work that through a bit. Now, I want to override it, but work it through because Paul said, fulfill ye my joy. So we can fulfill each other's joy in doing things that have a value to us that results in our reflecting upon what you're doing that brings to me joy. There's no doubt about us being able to bring that kind of impact into each other's life. But we are not the sole grounds upon which your joy emerges, okay? But we collectively can bring joy to each other. I can just, now be honest with what I just stated. Please be honest with what I just stated. You, a situation will occur and immediately you're joyous. Are you not? Brothers in a situation right now struggling through cancer. And I mean, this is a bad one. And do you know I'm already anticipating the joy when God heals him? I'm already rejoicing abundantly in his healing. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Like so many scenarios can bring us joy. 
because it's rooted in a principle in us of expectation of God doing something good for them. That doesn't even necessarily directly impact me, but I'm sharing in their triumph. I'm sharing in their fullness. I'm sharing in their benevolence. I'm sharing in the goodness that God gives them. It's real joy. Would you agree with that? Like, that's like, that's like real joy. This Sunday, I'm going to, we're going to be laying hands on another baby. You know, I, I, I knew the couple when they were single. You know, I saw the twinkle in their eye. All right, so here I am, you know, PJ gets to be part of that. Do you know how much joy that brings to me? Because I understand the implications of what God is doing in this world. He's still raising up children. He's still raising up babies, young adults. The world is going to go on according to the will and purpose of God, no matter how dark things get. It's still going to go on. And we have to be, able, and that's what Jesus says, right? Sorrow and having the baby, but once the baby is here, full of joy. So joy is, joy is a sanctified component. Now the issue of happiness, I mean, uh, lexically, that's a grammar issue because a lot of times in our English, the word happy really is the idea of contentment and satisfaction and joy. Okay, that's so linguistically, these are terms that we have taken in the English and, and kind of happy are ye if you do them. That's what Jesus says. Okay, that's an English equivalent of blessed are you. But the idea of fun, we haven't found a way to incorporate that into the Bible in a definition that, that has safeguards around godliness or our particular characteristics. Again, I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm just saying if we use the word fun in the place of joy, we're going to be in some real trouble. I guess I'm also trying to get clarity because I was just looking it up. Like I used to say the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? Okay. And at the same time, like when my mother passed away, I was sad, but it was a joy. I would say it was the joy of the Lord that kept me strengthened, even though I was sad at that time. I feel I never lost my joy. So, so, I, so, am I, am I messing that up? so, no, 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 you're right. So, you and I know that we can hold multiple emotional characteristics at the same time without them being mutually exclusive. Y'all do know that, right? Right. So, if, if you have a sadness that is a flood, of emotion that is so paralyzing that it drowns out your joy. Now that joy has suffered at the behest of a whole well of sadness. And that's going to make sense too. Is that not right? But on the spectrum of emotional uh, qualities, some qualities of emotion can coexist with other qualities of emotion and that not, not be a problem, right? The same thing I've said about faith. I can be afraid and trusting God at the same time. Didn't I say that? That's Psalm 56. So at what time I am afraid, I will trust the Lord. Right. Those are those are, uh, you know, different qualities of emotional makeup. All one is saying is when I'm afraid, I'm saying I'm not sovereign. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying I don't have all power. I'm saying I'm not all wise. I'm saying I haven't figured this one out yet. So since I'm not all powerful and all wise and haven't figured this one out, my limbic system is firing on all measures. Be ye afraid. Oh, what am I going to do when I'm afraid? I'm going to trust the Lord. Right. I mean, because that's the that's the solution to you discovering that you are extremely limited and maybe even super vulnerable in a moment. I mean, that's the beauty of faith. Come to me in the totality of your weakness, in the depths of your brokenness. 
Right. Faith is not saying only come when you are good, only come when you're solid. So um, emotional qualities, you guys can coexist in the same place at the same time. Again, proximally in a way in which they can strike a balance in you. And I think that's where we are as believers. Right. We have joy and we have sorrow hand over hand incrementally and frequently enough to keep us sober in our joy. Right. And hopeful in our sorrow. That's how that's how how it should be for believers. Right. We can be sorrowful, but hopeful. We can be joyful, but sober. I hope that's enough. All right. Let me close us in prayer so we can get out of here. You okay? Give her, give her the mic. I just wanted to thank you for clarifying that because before tonight, I might have said, seeing that child be baptized and feeling so much joy, I said, wasn't that fun? Yeah. And I love that the word sober depicts um, because I, I, I would happen to think a lot of the clarification between joy and fun, I would confuse those and I don't want to ever open up the non-soberness and be not somebody that um, is seen as being totally frivolous. Off. Yeah, exactly. And, and careless. That's right. So so you, I hope you guys love me. that. You heard me now, say I didn't huge. say take away from fun. That's right. I got I got 12 grandkids and I'm getting ready to have more. That's right. So I can't have that many grandkids and not have fun. Right. Like I'm like when they come over, it's on. Right. It's just on. You know, now I'm full of joy, but we get ready to have fun. The other thing is that um, about tongues, I'm also very happy because I used to feel really bad because I couldn't speak of in tongues. And I would see Covetous. other people thought, something's wrong with me because I, I do not feel led to have all those things come out of my body. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I must not be getting what all these other people are getting. Right. And so that's nice for me. But the other thing was is that I never could find in the Bible that, like, Jesus was, like, and also the one time that they talked about different tongues everybody could understand. So for me, um, I'm really happy that, that I can take that off my plate because I, when I'm my prayer language, it's very clear. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. And then I also want to be very clear and edifying when I'm feeling like a download per se, that's not in tongues, but it's very clear to share that, to edify somebody else. 100%. 100%. So let me let me just put in like four categories what I don't want you to lose around the study on tongues. You only know what you know about it. That's one thing. You only know what you know about it. And it would be good in that category of what you know about tongues to put. There's a lot I don't know. That keeps you humble. That's one thing. Secondly, what we do know about it is that tongues should never be done in public amongst people without an interpreter. That's two. So every time it's done, it's sinning. And that would give some implications about, you know, the lack of integrity of it or even the merit of it. Okay, that's that's true. So that's the regulatory principle. That's what edification and order is about. If you go back to the verses in 28, one or two or three and then give an interpreter. 
So it's not just a bunch of people babbling in any community, okay? So that's so extremely important that you and I understand that you don't get to take any gift and employ it any kind of way just to boast that you have that gift because like my sister just said, people can be intimidated by it. People can be made to feel less than by it. And frequently in Pentecostal communities, please know that those folks have often said, you're not saved. You don't have the Holy Ghost. You're not feel. And all of that is an abuse, a spiritual abuse of people. It's really a horrible thing. It's the reason why I don't mind when you walk out of those communities, because it's the dumbest thing in the world. Because what Paul said was, it's the least of the gifts. Every time in the order, it's the least of the gifts. So why are you going to take the least of the gift and now beat people over the head, threaten their eternal state, threaten their maturity in Christ, create a kind of discriminatory hierarchy? He's saved, but he ain't that saved because if he was that saved, he'd be speaking in tongues. All of that is utterly wrong. It smacks a bad fruit, if that makes sense. Um, so for us as believers, here's another category, and you can go get the CD and listen to it if you want to. I, you want to speak in a language, you call it a heaven language, fine. Do it to yourself in the closet. Because that is what would be inferred in the first few verses, right? He's praying unto God. She's praying unto God. I happen to believe that Paul is speaking in irony, but that I didn't want to go down that rabbit trail. Um, but the point would be, ultimately is why are you engaging in a practice that really doesn't edify others? Even if you assert that it edifies you. Did that make some sense? I know the language there says he that speaketh unto God edifies himself. But the question really is how can you be edified in yourself when you don't know what you're talking about? Right. You have to work that through now, because what what that text is warning us about is becoming Babylonians. And that is creating a mechanism and a process of of creating chaos. And that is disassembling, falling apart. Ladies and gentlemen, communication is under attack today. Truth is under attack propositional coherency, rational discourse is under attack. People, highest levels of power are framing things. I told you this six months ago. In a minute, artificial intelligence is going to have a complete corner on the market of language, and it will be able to frame things and present things to you and me and every one of us without discernment. You will not pick up on it. You will not pick up on it if you don't have a a love for really thinking clearly and coherently and objectively. If you get lost into this artificial intelligence system, which every second of the day it's working on what is called a singularity of dominance over everything, the perfection of its capacity to replicate human beings. So it'll get to a point where you won't be able to distinguish between a bot, a facsimile, and a real person. And it's already happening. It's already been used to thwart elections and condemn people for being places that they have not been and saying things that they have not said. So you and I are in in a language war 
of a significant degree. And it's going to get, please listen to me, it's going to get worse. By next year this time, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because they use it as a tool to uproot men and women who are not grounded in truth and are not grounded in the capacity of remaining objective when information is given to you. It requires discipline to put a filter up whenever you're hearing anything from anywhere. It's, it's just, okay, let me, oh, oh, let, let me back up. I was listening to an individual 10 days ago. I'm telling you, this guy was killing it. And then all of a sudden he turned the corner and said about six or seven or eight other lines. I'm not going to go into it now because a lot of people are trapped by this set of assumptions coming from this particular group. And when this guy turned the corner and started saying these things about our government and about um, certain politicians, I said, ah, that's artificial intelligence. I caught it. I caught it. I said, there you go. That's it. That's where people are going to get taken in at. Because see, it it will draw you in. And once you get in too far, you will lose sight of the fact that you no longer have objectivity. You are in your soul saying, yes, 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 yes. And only the grace of God will give you discernment to pause in the midst of that carrot dragging you. Okay. This is called the carrot and the hammer technique. Okay. It's a carrot drawing you in so you can get hit upside your head with a hammer and be stupefied under a set of propositions from which you can't extricate yourself. This is how people are deceived. Warren, can you speak up if you have the observation? It's already that now. This is where we are now. We build up to this over the centuries. Sister, something that happens no, every epoch of time. So we know we the the communication age, the communication age that started back with the computers, accelerated the capacity for governmental powers to use propaganda to shape the way society perceives, okay? I guess what I'm trying to say is is that we've been through disorders throughout the the history of of mankind, and we've gone into where we've had, I call it mass psychosis, where the whole society seems like it goes crazy. This seems like it's another one of those. No, it is. You are correct about that. You're correct about that. What I was saying was that prior to the technology that allows all of our language and conversation to be heard in one space where we can now, those kind of events were isolated to the territories around the world. When, when, when something was happening in Africa, it never could be heard in Switzerland. It could never could be heard in the Brits. When something happened in the Brits, let's say you and I know that we've been fighting wars from the beginning of time. Wars are always constructed around propaganda. Never is a war not first a propaganda, a psyop. That's your Bible. That is the serpent talking, right? Remember the serpent is a chaos motif. Why is the serpent talking? As soon as you can fail to grid the fact that the serpent is talking, he has you in the matrix. 
You are in the matrix now that you are talking to the serpent because you should have been objective enough to know, okay, ah, this is a serpent talking. That means something is wrong here. Am I making some sense? And that's where he got her. He pulled her into a dialogue at which the premise was flawed. The premise is animals don't talk to humans. And humans don't talk to animals until humans lower themselves and extract themselves from the Imago Dei and now become equivalent to the creatures on the ground, which is where we are today at the larger sociological level where powers that be do not see human beings any different than they see rats. And now that we're humanizing everything, this is what the whole COVID thing taught many of us. Science is a monstrosity of a Dr. Frankenstein kind of project for transhumanism. And so the goal is to actually continue to capture the mind and keep people paralyzed and blinded to reality. You guys know that's true. I know those of you are keeping up with me. You know this is true. And so what Warren is frustrated with, which I, I will just give it to you if you guys want it, learn how to detect when you're dealing with zombies. This is not really like funny, but I'm just saying you have to know when you're... So remember we talked about the term predictive programming? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be actually dealing in this in the near future very seriously. What is predictive programming? It is a psychological methodology that prepares you for an event that's already prescribed so that when that event occurs, you have a deep intuitive sense of its normalcy because you have already seen it in a predictive programming modality. Did that make some sense? And here's what happens when that occurs. If you have already seen it in your psyche because it came to you through different programs, when it happens, you go into a soft cognitive disconnect. Cognitive dissonance. Your screen will split between what's going on and the question, is this real? What's going on? Is this real? That's a cognitive dissonance. Now you're struggling. Are you keeping up with me? All right. What's going on? Is this real? And there is a part of you now that's predisposed to deny it being something that is uh, framed or what is called constructed. So constructs are, this is the argument of the postmodernists. Everything is a construct. Everything is fabricated. Everything is just what we say it is, right? This is your Matrix movie. So so the point that I'm getting at with you and me is this. When when we're confronted with a program or a presentation or people talking and you're listening to them, and you know this happens to you. God bless you. You know this happens to you. You're talking and then all of a sudden you kind of have an out-of-body experience when they're talking to you. And you go... This person just sounds like a straight nut. Y'all keep it up with me? Now stay with me for a second. God is saving you. Let me, let me, let me help. Can I help you? Right, because you have the thalmaza, you have the amazement and the wonder, the out-of-body experience, and you're going, 
This, this don't make no sense. This is way irrational. This is way illogical. This is way too fantastic. You have an out-of-body experience, meaning you are objective. You are critical now. You're analyzing it. The only thing you don't know to do now is whether you should go back inside your body and agree with that person or say, hey, man, that's a bunch of, and then keep it moving. Saving yourself. This is how con artists get you. Have you ever been conned? You know how when, when it's happening, you are going through this internal cognitive dissonance. Do you know why? Because you sense that there is a rhetorical control happening over you. You are being brought under the control of that person's ideas, that person's theory. That Salesmen do it all the time. Salesmen do it all the time to people. This is how they can, man, I can sell a person, you know, this. I can sell a person that. What's happening? As he talks to them, he dismantles their objectivity and he dismantles their agency to say no. That's what your media is doing every day. The CIA has been engaging in this for the longest time. Almost everything that you watch on the media is constructed. So, you know, I've been telling the folks who keep up with me, if you're going to watch news, if you want to make sure you know whether or not the news is credible, always ask this question. If there is a place that they're talking about somewhere in the Middle East or Africa or anywhere, do you have eyes on the ground in that event? Are people that are able to be on the ground talking to you while that event is going on or the subsequent things that have taken place in that event? Are they giving you data around it? You do have to listen to what they're saying because they can be in the spot and still be painting a propaganda picture. But at least you got somebody there. When you have a news organization like ours in America, where you are almost never talking to people on the ground, you're always listening to the journalist or the person talking. He's framing the whole narrative and you got pictures being given to you, propaganda. See, it used to be journalists were on the ground everywhere. Am I making some sense? And it used to be uglier because it was raw. It was unpredictable. Like the journalist would be on camera and he'd end up getting into a fight because, you know, truth is always controversial. It's never clean like these presentations we're dealing with. You're dealing with simulated events that are being orchestrated by those nice, clean, neat, suit-wearing, dress-wearing, hair-perfectly, you know, ornate. You know, the the, the ladies on these news shows don't never have messed up hair. Have you ever noticed that? Hey, never messed up. I'm like, how you go not have, you know, some messed up hair every now and then? Just let us know you're real. Just let some hair fall to the side or something. Right? Just let it fall to the side or something. I just need to know you're a real sister. Right? Right. And so you got to know Hollywood. Don't forget this word, Hollywood. Hollywood is the hellhole for constructing everything that has to do with fiction and nonfiction. All right, there you go. Let me close this and press in your home. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the saints coming out tonight. Um, we're asking for traveling mercies. We certainly need you to give us the ability to discern and therefore just overcome our own personal innate capacity for self-deception. 
uh, and then walk before you in humility because, um, you, you know, you promised to keep us from falling and to present us, you know, faultless before the presence of your glory. So we're walking in the humility that we can't see, we can't know, we can't discern without, without your gifts. And so we're saying, Lord, keep, keep us and keep ours, keep our family, keep our loved ones, keep our friends. As we go our way, give us traveling mercies, we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus. Amen.